Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me for this podcast. So, why should we all care about plankton? Well, there's lots of people, no doubt, listening who might not be sure what plankton actually are. They might have heard of the word, uh, maybe zooplankton or phytoplankton, but might not necessarily appreciate just how critical they are in terms of uh, ecology. So what I want to do in this podcast is just give a little bit of an introduction to what these amazing uh, biological organisms actually are. I want to talk about the diversity of plankton, the different types of plankton that we get, and the role that they play in ecosystems. And then I want to look at the environmental impact of plankton destruction. Aquatic organisms are classified by their location in water. Now these may be something called nectarine, which are organisms that swim just freely and faster than the currents. Benthos, which include organisms that live on or in the seafloor sediment and can't swim. Or plankton. Plankton are a diverse group of organisms that are either unable to swim or are very weak swimmers. In fact, these organisms are moved with the water currents. Huge numbers of plankton are microscopic and many are unicellular, so they're made up of one single cell. However, the term plankton also applies to larger animals, a bit like jellyfish. The word plankton is Greek and it means to wander or to drift. Microscopic plankton are essential components of aquatic food chains and food webs. They're amongst the most abundant organisms on the entire planet. So let's just talk about the diversity of plankton. And I said, uh, I mentioned these two names just moments ago. Plankton can be divided into two groups, phytoplankton and zooplankton. Phytoplankton are photosynthetic. So they create their own food from carbon dioxide and water using light as an energy source. Phytoplankton must have access to light. So they are found in the upper layers of water. These can be considered as the plant-like plankton, if you like. There's a huge and diverse range of phytoplankton. Some are eukaryotic and others are prokaryotes. The eukaryotic phytoplankton have membrane-bound organelles, basically. Prokaryotic phytoplankton are unicellular and their photosynthetic pigments are found on what are called mesosome membranes. So let's talk about some examples of phytoplankton. Well, we've got the diatoms. These are microscopic, sort of yellow-browny algae with cell walls made of silica. They're present in huge numbers in oceans, in bodies of fresh water, and even in the soil. Although diatoms are unicellular, they can form clumps, or what we call colonies. Individual diatoms have a very wide range of shapes and wide range of sizes. The silica in the cell walls is shaped and sculpted into intricate patterns. So diatoms can be classified by the structure of their silica cell walls, as well as differences in their DNA sequences. Then there's a group called the desmids. Now desmids are microscopic green algae with cellulose cell walls. Now they are closely related to plants and they contain chlorophylls A and B. Desmids are characterised by their varied cell shapes. They're not as wide-ranging as diatoms. They're found in freshwater bogs and lakes with quite a low pH and where the nutrient levels are low. Desmids are covered in a layer of slime, which forms this protective 
external coating. As they are all single-celled organisms, they're placed in the Protoctista kingdom. Desmids can form filaments or associate together into, again, these things called colonies. Now I'd like to talk about something called cyanobacteria. These are some of the oldest living organisms on Earth. They're often called the blue-green algae, but they are prokaryotes. The surface-dwelling cyanobacteria are photosynthetic organisms containing the pigment phycocyanin to absorb light. However, some marine cyanobacteria are found in the benthos and others form symbiotic relationships with sponges and seaweeds. Cyanobacteria are a type of indicator species because their presence can show changes in water quality. Many will affect the taste and the smell of water. In fact, thick layers of cyanobacteria form a bloom on the top of water and that can result in eutrophication, which hopefully, if any of my own students are listening, will be familiar with that particular process. Some of the algal blooms that form may be toxic. So I mentioned earlier about zooplankton. Zooplankton are classified by their size and developmental uh, stage. They're larger than the phytoplankton that I've been talking about. As they are non-photosynthetic, they can be considered as the, I guess you could say in inverted commas if you like, animal group of plankton. There are two different types of zooplankton, holoplankton and miroplankton. Holoplankton remain as plankton throughout their whole life cycle. Miroplankton, however, are part of the plankton only when they are larvae. So let me talk through some examples of the holoplankton. So there's the radiolaria. So these are marine zooplankton. They belong to the protoctista. Different species secrete a silica skeleton around their cell. And these skeletons, as you might have guessed, have quite complex patterns. Radiolaria capture phytoplankton using a network of pseudopodia called rhizopodia. These are thin cytoplasmic extensions that are extruded through the silica coat. Surface-dwelling radiolarians may develop a symbiotic relationship with algae. The algae live in the cytoplasm of the cell and they absorb light energy for photosynthesis. The nutrients created by the algae help support the radiolarians. And then there's the foraminifera. It's quite a uh, mouthful to say. Uh, These are single-celled organisms, rather, with uh, calcareous shells. The shells may have one or more chambers. And the shells are perforated with, with many holes, or foramens, basically. Through which these pseudopodia that I mentioned uh, just a moment ago extrude. Foraminifera are sensitive to changes in the environmental conditions, like salinity, like temperature and pH. And so a good indicator species. Like diatoms, they're abundant in marine environments. And they form a major part of the biomass as food for fish and invertebrates. Miraplankton include the larvae of aquatic creatures such as sea urchins and marine mollusks. They are temporary, as I said before, members of the plankton. So now that I've given this kind of overview or introduction to what phytoplankton and zooplankton actually are, Let's talk about their role in the ecosystem. It's really at the heart of this particular podcast. 
Well, marine diatoms, if I take each kind of group that I've referred to, I can hi really highlight, I want to emphasize the importance of each kind of subcategory, if you like. So let's start with diatoms. Marine diatoms release oxygen when they carry out photosynthesis. It's estimated that they create about 20% of the oxygen that is in the atmosphere. They remove carbon dioxide from water for photosynthesis. Now in that way, they play an essential role in the carbon cycle. By fixing carbon into sugars, diatoms are reducing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. It's been estimated that the diatoms collectively fix as much carbon dioxide as all of the rainforests on the entire planet. About 40% of the photosynthesis that takes place in the oceans is carried out by diatoms. These essential producers are the start of marine food chains. Without their input, there would be not enough energy to support organisms higher up the food chain. Diatoms form the main food for zooplankton, and zooplankton sustain the larger organisms. They're able to remove silica from water and transfer this into a cell wall. They help to maintain the levels of silica, therefore, in seawater. Much research is still being carried out on the mechanisms that diatoms use to create geometric patterns and sculptures of the silica in the cell wall. Silica transport proteins have been found in some species, interestingly. After death, the silica shells of diatoms fall to the bottom of the ocean, and these shells form sediments. Sediment can be analysed by scientists, and the information can be used to track water quality and geological time patterns. Over long periods, compacted diatoms form oil. Unfortunately, when the oil is burned, that carbon that was stored is released. And then there's the desmids. Well, their presence in water can be used to ascertain levels of contamination and pollution, which is critical. The cyanobacteria are pioneer organisms. They colonise bare areas and they change the environmental conditions so that other organisms can survive. Cyanobacteria are consumed by filter feeders and grazers, so they're important in the feeding relationships. They're able to absorb atmospheric nitrogen and fix it into organic compounds. This makes nitrogen compounds available to a wide range of organisms. Some plant and fungi have actually evolved symbiotic relationships with these bacteria and take them into their roots. Some forms of cyanobacteria can be used for human and animal consumption. For example, spirulina can be cultivated in tanks and used to produce a protein-rich food. Radiolaria have a larger, more robust skeletons than other marine diatoms. As they're better preserved in marine sediments, their fossilised remains have provided a comprehensive record for paleontologists. They are filter feeders and they can predate upon other plankton. Some radiolaria develop symbiotic relationships with algae and other photosynthetic plankton. Then there's the foraminifera. The distribution of foraminifera apologies, microfossils can be used to accurately date rocks. Now that information can be widely used by the oil industry when trying to find oil deposits. Fossil foraminifera give useful information to paleontologists. 
the presence of fossils can actually be used by archaeologists when dating stone materials. So that's just a very quick snapshot of these kind of groups and their key roles in ecosystems. Now I might be thinking, well, how could we actually go about sampling plankton? Well, the number and type of different plankton can give scientists vital information about the environment. So marine ecologists are constantly trying to sample plankton to monitor these changes. And they can be collected in uh, a few different methods. So before we get into the environmental impact of plankton destruction, I just want to go through some of these methods. So we could, uh, well, really use a net, a trap or a tube. It really does depend on the area to be sampled, but they're the three most common uh, methods. So with a net, we have a fine mesh net that's pulled through the water, either vertically or horizontally, and the plankton are rinsed off from the net into a sample bottle. With a trap, particularly a Schindler Patalus trap. Uh, it's just a clear plastic box with closing doors. So a trap is to be lowered to a particular level and it fills with water before the doors are closed. And that trap is used to sample plankton at different depths. And if we go for the tube method, well, just simply using a clear plastic tube, a complete column of water gets taken at a particular level and any plankton are filtered out from that water sample. Once the plankton sample has been collected, the organisms can be identified and then their biomass can be calculated. Marine phytoplankton are at the bottom of the food chain. They are producers. Phytoplankton are the food for the larger zooplankton. In turn, smaller invertebrates and fish feed on the zooplankton and are in turn eaten by larger predators. One of the largest mammals on the planet is the baleen whale. These whales are highly adapted. They filter out the plankton using baleen plates. These tiny organisms form the whale's only food source. Plankton living near the surface of water are very sensitive to changes in temperature. This is due to changes in air temperature. Now, research scientists are finding that rising sea temperatures due to climate change, are totally altering the abundance, the distribution and seasonal changes of the plankton. This has huge implications for marine food chains. It will impact on the fishing industry and human food sources. Warm water contains less oxygen than cooler water and that will affect organisms that rely on dissolved oxygen for respiration. Phytoplankton help moderate the carbon dioxide levels on the planet. Quite simply put, with a reduction in phytoplankton, more carbon dioxide will remain trapped in the Earth's atmosphere. And sadly, global warming will increase further. So, my first question to you all at the start of this podcast is, why should we all care about plankton? I think, really, hopefully, after listening to this podcast, the answer is, is plain to see. Thank you everybody for listening and I'd like to again thank our sponsors Curriculum Press for providing me with a little bit of content for me to use for this particular podcast.